From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I think that especially with the Museum of the Bible, we need to talk about the ethics of history production or history writing. History or the past is always something that is constructed. We have to write it. We have to produce it. We have to gather together the remnants of stuff that's related to those past, decide what's relevant, what's not, and then we tell a story about it. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jill Hicks Keaton and Kevin Concanon. Jill Hicks-Keaton is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. She's the author of Arguing with Asenath and the forthcoming book, Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. Kevin Concanon is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Profaning Paul. Today we're talking about their recent co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Jill Hicks-Keaton and Kevin Concanon, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. So we're going to get to the big picture of what the Museum of the Bible is that's referenced there in the title of your book. But on the way to that, I want to start our interview in a bit of an odd place. If we're walking through the Museum of the Bible, on one of the floors, we come to an exhibit under a huge sign that reads, Justice. And beneath that sign, there is a mock-up of a prison cell. And as we walk into the prison cell, we are confronted with some images, and we're confronted also with a kind of ideology. Professor Hicks-Keaton, I wonder if you could bring us there as much as we can do on radio. Help us to understand what we're walking into when we walk into that exhibit, and then give us a little bit of the analysis that you and Professor Kincannon bring out from looking at that exhibit very carefully. This exhibit is an immersive one on what they call the impact of the Bible for, and Visitors are actually invited to walk into a simulated prison cell where there are pictures of incarcerated men. Up above you, they look like a bit like headshots. And the point of the exhibit is that the Bible has contributed to justice, which is when you say there's a sign that says justice. This is the particular example that the museum is offering as a place where the Bible has done something good in the world. That's the theme of the entire floor, which is what we argue in the book. And we also use the simulated prison cell to point out that the goodness that the Bible is conceived to have done in the world is a goodness that is particular for white individuals in the United States because the prison system is systemically discriminating against people who are non-white. And Professor Concanon. I wonder if you could expand on this a little bit, because Professor Hicks-Keaton just talked about white Christianity. And as we're setting the table here, 
you you say very specifically in the introduction to the book, both of you, that you're not using this as a kind of accusation, but rather as a kind of description. And I wonder if you could flesh that out for us. What do we mean when we're talking about white Christianity or white evangelical Christianity in the context of your book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? Thank you for that question. It's a great question. When we talk about white evangelicalism, which is the focus of the book, what we mean is a particular sect of American Christianity that's defined by a history of whiteness. And as you rightly note, this is not about demographics. This is about a history that we chart of particular investments in institutional life that are designed to promulgate, to repeat, and to broadcast a set of theological ideas that we typically associate with evangelicalism more broadly, but which are designed to craft a form of Christianity that is supportive of and is invested in the maintaining the power structure of white American life in, Amer in the United States. And Professor Hicks-Keaton, I want to expand on what Professor Kincannon just said, this idea of particular investments in institutional life. And now I want to begin to broaden our focus here because we're looking in your book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself, about a very institutionalized set of investments, a physical building near the Washington Mall in Washington, D.C., near the cordons of power, the Museum of the Bible. And I wonder if you could briefly outline for our listeners what the Museum of the Bible is intends itself to be. And I recognize, as you say in the book, that's a moving target with regard to its mission statements. But when we're talking about the Museum of the Bible, in broad strokes, what are we talking about? Well, the available data to figure out what it is that they perhaps intend to be is how they advertise themselves. So we look at, in the book, how this institution is presenting itself to the public through advertisements, through emails, publicity in press releases and so forth. And part of the publicity around it has been that this is a project to let the Bible speak for itself, hence the title of our book. And as others have pointed out, and we point out as well, is a sort of Protestant rhetoric around how the Bible works. And, and so we became interested in describing, well, if we know that the Bible can't speak for itself, how can we say what this institution is doing with the Bible? What does the Bible look like that they're constructing and publicizing? And as you say, it's not just a building in Washington, D.C. It is also a series of actors who, political actors who are moving through the museum, who are holding events there, who are showing movies there. Previously had a press that was putting out a whole series of books under a Museum of the Bible imprint. And so it is a larger institution that is not just the physical museum in D.C. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jill Hicks-Keaton and Kevin Concannon. Jill Hicks-Keaton is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Concannon is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. We're discussing their recent co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? the Museum of the Bible, and the Politics of Interpretation. Well, Professor Kincannon, I want to pick up on this piece that Professor Hicks-Keaton just gave us about this notion of Protestant rhetoric and this idea that the Museum of the Bible is itself constructing a Bible. And at certain points within your book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself?, 
You talk about the Museum of the Bible as a kind of factory for this kind of production of the Bible. Now, I'm going to just pause for a second and imagine that I'm a listener. Uh, I'm looking over at my bookshelf, and I have a bunch of Bibles on the bookshelf over there, and I can just think to myself, well, I don't need to think about what a Bible is or how it is produced. I've got one right over there. It's the Bible. What's the problem in simply saying it's the Bible? Where would you begin to interrupt that kind of assertion, and how would you begin to bring complexity into that assertion of, I've got the Bible, it's the Bible? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I think what I would start by saying is that I would say that the Bible doesn't exist. And this is something we say in the book, that only Bibles with a lowercase b exist. So the Bible that we access in book form is produced by people. It's translated by committees. It is laid out by publishing houses. It is filled in with extra information to provide context or cross-references. So the Bibles that we have are produced. They are materialized Bibles, and there are as many Bibles as there are printed Bibles, and there are more of those, more than that. But the Bible with a capital B is a cultural icon. It's a construct. It's a way that we try to organize all of those multiple Bibles into the kind of platonic form of the Bible itself. But the point is that the Bible doesn't really exist as anything other than a concept. We don't have access to the perfect Bible, the Bible as intended by the complex set of authors that produced these texts in the first place. And this is not to even forget the fact that in antiquity, there were multiple authors of biblical texts that were not thinking of themselves as producing a single book. Those texts have been edited and commented upon and worked on even before modernity. So the Bible has always been a moving library of texts. So what we're trying to say in the book is that if we take that seriously, then what we need to think of, what we used to think of as interpreting the Bible is really actually just making the Bible scriptural anew, is producing or making Bibles. So when we look at the Museum of the Bible, we look at it as a place where, if it's, where Bibles are made, and in particular, the museum calls itself the Museum of the Bible. So what is the Bible that the museum is making? Uh, not that the museum is somehow representing the Bible, capital B. Well, and I want to pick up on this idea with you, Professor Keaton, because when we're talking about this production of this concept of the Bible, oftentimes, and you both point this out in the book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? Oftentimes, the process of doing that resolves to a kind of historical critical question. Not what Bible are we producing, but rather, are we producing the right Bible? And you point out in your analysis of the Museum of the Bible that in its early days, this was often the criticism that was being brought against the Museum of the Bible, that the Bible that it was producing wasn't the correct Bible or wasn't a scholarly supported Bible. And you both have begun to move beyond that criticism. I wonder if you could briefly line out for us what that initial criticism was and why you began to move away from it. Sure. Well, so Professor Kincannon and I were both trained in historical criticism of the Bible and are now doing what we think is more interesting and more ethically urgent. And so the previous work that we were participating in, so this is not a critique of others principally, but of self-reflection of our own scholarship treating the Museum of the Bible, previously it was more about accuracy assessment. And so proving to people affiliated with the Museum of the Bible 
that, hey, you say this is not a Protestant institution, you say this is not producing an evangelical Bible, but actually it looks very evangelical to us and we are the experts who are allowed to say that. And we have moved beyond that from accuracy assessment, where we are the experts, to treating the Museum of the Bible as data for various phenomena, including what white evangelical Christianity is up to now and how they are advancing their interests and how they are scripturalizing texts that advance their interests in the U.S. And Professor Kincannon, as we're moving towards our first break, I want to build on what Professor Hicks-Keaton just gave us. So when we're talking about the production of the Bible at a site like the Museum of the Bible, it sounds as if we're talking about also the production of a certain type of expertise. Now, this is my phrasing, not yours, but as I say that, does that sound right? And if so, what kind of expertise are we producing at a site like the Museum of the Bible? And if I'm wrong, where would you correct what I'm saying? So I think that part of what we think of the museum is doing a number of things with regard to expertise. On the one hand, the museum evokes secular academic expertise as part of legitimizing its exhibits or its publications or the story that it's telling about the Bible. So it is it draws from traditional historical critical sites of institutional knowledge to make claims about its own accuracy or veracity. On the other hand, I think part of what's happening too is that the museum presents a history of the Bible that is connected to and resonates with existing white evangelical beliefs, such that people who come to the museum have their preconceptions about the Bible reinforced. And so in a sense, those who are expert in reading the Bible or reading biblical texts within white evangelical culture or within a white evangelical frame, are their expertise in that is reinforced by the logic and the rhetoric and the experience of the, of the museum itself. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Jill Hicks-Keaton, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Kincannon, who is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. We're talking today about their co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking to Jill Hicks-Keaton. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Kincannon, who is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. Today, we're talking about their recent co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible, and the Politics of Interpretation. 
So, Professor Kincannon, in the last segment, Professor Hicks Keaton said something in passing that I want to circle back to. She raised the question of ethical urgency, reframing what we might sometimes say about a museum. Is it getting things historically correct? Is it using the historical critical method properly to maybe a different kind of centering around an ethical framing? And so I want to ask the question first so that my listeners have this clear. When we're talking about museums, what kind of ethical problems are we talking about? How could a museum be ethical or not ethical? That's a great question. I think that we need to start with, uh, with saying that museums are not objective purveyors of historical or cultural facts. And this is a common misconception about museums. I think some, in some ways it results from a notion that museums are kind of scientific enterprises. But museums tell stories with objects and with their exhibits. And so when we talk about the ethics of a museum, we can talk about it from a couple of different angles. We can talk about it from the perspective of how did they get their collection of materials? And we can talk about how did they produce their exhibits? And we can talk about what story are those exhibits telling? And in each of those different ways, we can assess, I think, the ethics of how that museum's operating. And so when we talk about the ethics of this museum, we're talking about what are the ethical implications of the exhibits, the rhetoric, and the collection of artifacts that are used in the museum itself. And Professor Hicks-Keaton, as you listened to Professor Kincannon's response to my question, I'm wondering, did he get the fullness of what you were trying to point to when you talked about this ethical urgency? Or is there another dimension that we should be considering here? I think that especially with the Museum of the Bible, we need to talk about the ethics of history production or history writing, which also impacts how we think about our writing about the museum. And where we're not necessarily assessing whether it as an institution is ethical, but rather how the history that it is writing, that it is producing and presenting to visitors is functioning. And so we call this, rather than history, we call this productions of usable pasts because the past is inaccessible to us, really. We have data that we can interpret or present in multiple different ways, more persuasively or less persuasively, depending on the frame that one is working in. And so that, to me, would be the most important question to ask in terms of our work on the Museum of the Bible is, what is the history doing? How is it producing something functional, a usable past? And I'm delighted that we've gone into this realm. And for listeners, if you want to know more about what's being referenced here, let me mention a short book by an author named Hayden White, a short book called The Practical Past. But what we're dealing with here is this notion of the construction of history. And I think some of my listeners may pause at this point and say, what are you talking about the construction of history? It's just history. It's there. But you both, I'm hearing you saying, that's, it's more complex than that. It's not the case. So, Professor Kincannon, when I say to you, it's just history, where would you begin to pick that apart and say, it's not just history, there's something more active going on here in the telling of history? Yeah, that's right. And obviously, these are contemporary debates that we're having as a society around higher education in a number of states at present. But yeah, history is not just there. History or the past is something that we don't have access to. Even our own pasts, we don't have access to them anymore. And so history or the past is always something that is constructed. We have to write it. We have to produce it. We have to gather together the remnants of stuff that's related to those past, decide what's relevant 
what's not. And then we tell a story about the past. That doesn't mean that we just make up the past, but that the past is constructed out of things that are of interest to us. We write our stories based upon what we are interested in. And so the past is always a reflection of our interests onto things that remain from those past events. And Professor Hicks-Keaton, I want to build on this. One of the distinctions that Hayden White makes in that book that I just referenced, The Practical Past, is that there are two types of pasts that historians deal with. One is trying to arrange the story of the facts in the most objective way possible, trying to get the past right unto itself. But then they open this other dimension and they say there's another way of looking at history, and that is not to tell us what happened in the past, but rather using history to tell us what we should be doing in the present, a more practical version of the past. My sense from talking to you both so far in this conversation is that when we look at the Museum of the Bible, it is maybe gesturing at the historical past. We want to, quote unquote, get it right, but it really has an interest in telling its patrons what they should be doing in the present and how they should be pointing themselves towards a future. Now, these are my words, not yours. When I say that, Professor Hicks-Keaton, does that feel too grand and too broad, or have I understood in some way part of the thesis of your book? I do think that's right. I wouldn't speak about their intention, but rather what we can glean from the data, visual data that is available, experiential data that's available at the museum. And one example that I could offer is that when we walk through, for example, the Bible in America hallway, Professor Kincannon and I argue that exhibit is really a usable past for grounding a desired future that authorizes white evangelical privilege in the United States and that furthermore is a usable past that authorizes white Christian nationalism. And so it's centering the Bible in socially progressive movements that are now in the contemporary moment looked back on as positive steps. So the Bible is given a credit for what's now considered a positive thing in the United States, such as the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage. And the Bible is exculpated from the wrong side, the quote unquote wrong side. And so the argument there, we think, is that the Bible could then become the center again of legal discourse, of political discourse, of decision making that affect everyone in the country. So it's, a, it's an argument that centers the Bible in American public life. So, Professor Hicks-Keaton, I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly. In your answer, you started by bracketing the question of intention and saying, instead, we're looking at the data. Help me understand that move. Why is it off the table to ask what the creators of this museum and even the financial backers of this museum intended? Are you suggesting that's not an appropriate question, or are you suggesting that that's an elusive question because their intentions might be more, I hate to invoke Freud here, but would be more unconscious or subconscious rather than directly conscious in their, in their origin? I can't get inside their minds to see what the intention is. And even if I could, I'm not sure that intention necessarily matches reality, right? So like the intention may not be possible. The intention may not have been executed well. And so I think that the better and more answerable question is what is the effect, not what they intended, but what they produced. Though 
it is interesting to look at, for example, as we do in the book, what the funders and founders have said about their intentions. That is also data, but I would not want to report that naively as actually what happened or what was produced. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. We're speaking today with Jill Hicks-Keaton. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Concanon, who is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. We're speaking today about their co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Professor Concanon, I want to pick up on something that Professor Hicks-Keaton just said. She talked about the Museum of the Bible creating a viable past that authorizes a desired future, and she suggested that one of the possible goals here is, and this is going to be my phrasing, sanitizing or rehabilitating the Bible so that it once again could become central in questions of legal discourse or questions of moral discourse for American life. I'm wondering if you have anything to add to that estimation of what the Museum of the Bible is trying to accomplish, recognizing that we can't know for sure we're just going on the data, what would you add or what would you amplify in what Professor Hicks-Keaton just said? One of the things that I think is happening here, and this is part of our language of we're continuing to say the Bible, even though that's a construct that we're trying to deconstruct here. So I think part of what's happening, based upon my interpretation of this museum, is that the kind of historical expunging of the Bible's role in bad things that Professor Hicks-Heaton described, like slavery or patriarchy or any number of evils from the past that we now all agree are bad, is to set up not the Bible, but the white evangelical Bible as a positive or a good source for contemporary life, which is to say that if the Bible, if the white evangelical Bible did not do bad things in the past and it only worked for the good, then it will work for the good in the future. And so it's an argument for why it should be centered in public life and why it's this particular reading of the Bible should be centered in public life. Because we're not talking here about centering the Orthodox theology or even Roman Catholic theology. We're talking here about centering a certain notion of biblical perspicacity, of biblical inerrancy that comes out of a very conservative history within Protestantism and that gets crystallized in a museum as a white evangelical Protestantism. And so to center that Bible and to make that Bible and all the ideas, political systems, theological ideas that are associated with it as acceptable to be used as an anchor for rethinking American public life. And let me just stress again that this is just my interpretation of the data. So, Professor Concanon, at several points in this conversation, you both have suggested that the Museum of the Bible is a kind of factory that reinforces existing beliefs and is also producing a kind of product that we are calling in this conversation the White Evangelical Bible. But I want to pause there because when I think about the Bibles on my bookshelf, I'm thinking about a physical thing. I'm thinking about a product something that I can read, but it had a, an origin point in time. And so I want to begin to tease out this notion that patrons are walking in with a sort of sense of what the white evangelical Bible is, and then they're walking out of the Museum of the Bible with a reinforced, reproduced notion of what the white evangelical Bible is. Where in time is the white evangelical Bible that we're talking about 
happening. Is it a product or is it an ideology? How would you characterize this thing that we're talking about when we say the white evangelical Bible? The answer is a little complicated. I think part of what we, the story that we tell in the book is one that counters the prevailing history of evangelicalism as one of a set of beliefs that move through time relatively unchanged, and one that is actually about how people build white evangelical theology over time in different ways. So we look at how various wealthy white interests in the late 19th and early 20th century invested in conservative Protestant institutions that began to resonate this theology and amplify it and repeat it. And over time, various other institutional additions were added to that. Seminaries, Bible colleges, publishing houses, interfaces with business interests, all sorts of things that resonated this white evangelical theology over and over again. And it changes and transforms. We think it mostly crystallizes from our perspective in the kind of middle of the 20th century. But we see the Museum of the Bible as another resonance machine that is added onto this larger network. And we can see the network in all the events that happen at the Museum of the Bible already, that it's very integrated into the other institutions, many of the other institutions that we would characterize as white evangelical institutions. So we can think of white evangelicalism as a big machine, big resonance machine, resonates and amplifies these ideas over and over again so that they seem fixed and they seem normative and they seem eternal in a sense. But what we really want to pay attention to is how moneyed interests are involved in the production of this sense of permanency to white evangelical theology. So that's what we mean by a machine in referencing the museum. So, Professor Hicks-Keaton, as Professor Kincannon is talking about this machine for the production of a certain type of Bible, the white evangelical Bible, machines, factories, they need raw material in order to generate their products. And you deal with this in your book in a chapter called Provenance, where we're looking at some of the ways in which the Museum of the Bible is gathering these already existent raw materials of culture and directing it towards the production of this notion of the white evangelical Bible. Could you talk to us about the provenance that we're looking at here? Sure. So this is a word that is typically used to describe where a museum or some other entity got an item, an artifact. So the provenance is how you trace a history of ownership of an item. And the Museum of the Bible has famously been in the news for some scandals around provenance of its artifacts on display or those that have been collected by its primary donors in the form of Hobby Lobby and the Green family. But we take this word and do something different with it, where if we're saying that the Museum of the Bible is producing a Bible or can even be read itself as a Bible, let's trace the provenance of that Bible. And so this is why we tell this history of other white evangelicals through the past century and a half who have been likewise publicizing white evangelical theology and politics through a variety of different institutions. So we trace the provenance of not of the artifacts in the museum, but of the museum itself by locating it in a history that is explanatory of how it came to be. Now, if I'm understanding correctly what you just said, you're turning this meta question 
about the items within museums back on the museum itself to think about where did this particular cultural artifact, the Museum of the Bible, come from? Now, when I say it back to you that way, have I understood it correctly or would you say it in a different way? That's right. So let's now turn to you, Professor Kincannon, and ask about some of these things that are outside of the museum that have been woven into this factory floor, using the metaphor that you're talking about here. Things like the Moody Bible Institute or a persona like the evangelist Billy Graham. How do these raw materials begin to be reappropriated by, and how do they help us understand the provenance of the Museum of the Bible? Yeah, so one of the things that we want to stress in the book is that, like I said before, evangel white evangelicalism is produced, and it's produced by institutions, um, by moneyed interests over time. And we look back at the early 20th century, this sort of very formative period where a lot of these institutions are being built as, a, as analogs for thinking about how the Museum of the Bible itself fits into this larger machine. So we talk about the Moody Bible Institute as a place where the branding of white evangelical theology really kicks into high gear, particularly branding white evangelical theology for middle-class American consumption. And this is something we get from the historian Tim Glogue, great, um, has a great book on this, on the Moody Bible Institute. And when we think about Billy Graham, we often think about Billy Graham as representing a kind of neo-evangelicalism in the middle of the 20th century. But Graham is himself not just not the mover and shaker of evangelicalism. He is an effect. He is supported by a variety of institutions that are funded by wealthy industrialists. He's connected to a whole bunch of institutions. And so we're not talking here about a history that is just how ideas flow through time. It's about how they are made, produced within networks, with money, with institutions. And the Museum of the Bible is a new iteration of that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jill Hicks-Keaton. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. She's the author of Arguing with Asenath and the forthcoming Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. Kevin Kincannon is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Profaning Paul. Today we're talking about their recent co-authored book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? the Museum of the Bible, and the Politics of Interpretation. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Jill Hicks-Keaton and Kevin Kincannon. Jill Hicks-Keaton is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Kincannon is Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. They are co-authors of the recent book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Well, Professor Hicks-Keaton when you're walking physically into the Museum of the Bible, one of the things that you see prominently is the donor wall. And we've talked about this already, that the Museum of the Bible, in your analysis, is a kind of factory for reproducing certain ideas about what the Bible is and what the Bible should be and how the Bible should be in public life. When we look at that donor wall, and we, when we look at what the donors themselves individually have said about the Bible or what they think the Bible should be doing in the world, 
Help us to navigate that. How, how are these donors influencing or not influencing what we see in the museum? The donor wall is a bit of a who's who of conservative or evangelical figures and institutions. The, the primary donors and the sort of people who envisioned this institution are the Green family out of Oklahoma, the owners of Hobby Lobby. And they have, in a series of publications, in conjunction with the museum's opening and then after the opening of the museum in 2017, have said things about what their intention is with the museum, have put out their ideas about the Bible that are consistent with evangelical faith claims, evangelical biblicism, that one would not see in the museum itself because they're actually not consistent with the museum's publicity as representing itself as a non-sectarian institution that does not promote a particular view about the Bible. And so the donors have a separate sort of stream of publicizing their ideas about the Bible and their expressed desire in these books for the Bible to have a larger role in sort of moral authority in the United States and the Bible's role in American public life. So, Professor Kincannon, let's now broaden this out because we've talked about the sort of moneyed interests around the Museum of the Bible. And now this might be a chance for us to ask a kind of more meta question about capitalism itself and even what we might call and what you call specifically biblical capital. I wonder if you could begin to help my listeners understand where you and Professor Hicks-Keaton are going with that part of your analysis. Yeah, so the Museum of the Bible is itself enmeshed in what we might call uh, neoliberal capitalism. It is the result of tax breaks that are afforded to privately held corporate giving. A lot of its collection has moved from Hobby Lobby to the museum via these networks or via these systems. It's also enmeshed in questions around selling aspects of the Bible. You can buy lots of things at the museum. The museum is marketing itself in a kind of branding way that's very similar to how corporations brand themselves. So it's enmeshed in this, these networks of neoliberal capitalism, as everything really is at this point. When we talk about biblical capital, what we're talking about are the ways in which both during the production of the museum and after it opened in their writings, the Green family used their role as donors and founders as part of a narrative that reinforces their own capital, their own social capital within white evangelical circles. And this is a delicate dance. We take this notion of social capital from the work of Pierre Bourdieu, a French sociologist, and adapt it in our own way. It's a delicate dance of taking material capital, money that you acquire from Hobby Lobby in this case, and converting it into a philanthropic enterprise and how that redounds back to you in the form of social capital. And the way in which we see the Greens narrativizing this, which is to say that they narrativize themselves as following God's lead in giving money to produce this museum. Often they talk about it in a kind of passive way, like they were just led into this situation. This then redounds back to them in the form of biblical capital, we argue, which is to say that they now have a kind of capital within white evangelicalism as people who have invested money, energy, and their own power in boosting the Bible and its role in American public life. 
So we we trace the ways in which the Green family in their publications and social media feeds and publicity have described themselves as the founding family of the Museum of the Bible, which has become sort of a tagline for platform building. Well, and this opens up a field of questions that I want to ask to the both of you, because there's one point where you trace a kind of subtle shift that has large consequences around how the Museum of the Bible presents itself. Initially, it presents itself as a kind of secular nonprofit organization. And then over time, it moves to what I took to be a kind of quasi-religious site, and even possibly now as a religious site unto itself. Now, first of all, when I say that to you both, have I read this shift correctly? And if not, what should be said instead? But if I have read it correctly, can you both begin to walk us through that shift over time from a very secular site to now something that might be read either culturally or legally as a ministry or a religion unto itself? There have been several shifts in the wording of the mission statement for the Museum of the Bible. And the most recent iteration of the mission statement appears to include more religious language, whereas previously there was a lot of publicity and a lot of pushback against the idea that this was a religious institution. But the word that matters in the new mission statement is that they're tracing the transformative power of the Bible. And so we think that this word transformative in that phrase is an indication, potentially, of a embracing of the idea that this museum is supposed to do something probably spiritual, probably religious, but that it is inviting people to engage not just with a historical book, but with a book that actually does something for people, that transforms. So, Professor Kincannon, building on this notion that the language of the transformative power of the Bible in the mission statement That begins to sound like what I was saying earlier about Hayden White and the notion of the practical past, the past that is useful for us in moral decision-making in the present. It almost seems like the White Evangelical Bible is a product that wants something from us in the present. If we were to begin to characterize what it is that your analysis shows us that the White Evangelical Bible is wanting from the patrons of the Museum of the Bible, what would we imagine that to be? So I think that the, a way to answer that question is to say that there's probably a lot of different things that the white evangelical Bible might want. And probably, though we talk about it as a kind of, sing, as a kind of singular sect within American Christianity, it doesn't mean that it's not diverse in terms of its interest within that sect. So um, there could be lots of different things that this museum might want people to take away. But let's focus on one particular set of audiences. That's the Green family themselves. So they have both funded this museum and they've also reacted to it and responded to how it has come together. And so in their writings, both again, during the production of the museum and afterwards, they talk about things that they think the white evangelical Bible wants from us or wants to do in society, which is to say that they want forms of American traditional life to come back. That's what they narrate in these books about what the Bible says. And so this turns around questions around marriage and traditional forms of the family and different roles of women in public life. 
And so one way to think about what this Bible wants is to think about how the Greens have activated that Bible in their own writings. Did you want to add anything to that, Professor Hicks-Keaton? I would emphasize that this is our redescription, but these are not internal terms. So as we look at the wider American cultural landscape over the last 10 years, we've seen a big shift. And longtime listeners will know that I'm preoccupied with certain Supreme Court cases, in particular, a Supreme Court case called Employment Division v. Smith, that really back in the 1980s going into the 1990s reinforced the wall of separation between church and state. We've seen now a complete reversal of that kind of regime that we found in Employment Division v. Smith, and the Supreme Court has begun returning to a restoration of robust and even radical religious practice rights, but mostly for corporations and mostly for Christian sects rather than minority religious sects. As we're looking at a site like the Museum of the Bible, does the Museum of the Bible function for us in these cultural conversations as a kind of aspirational landmark? It's in the distance, and it's what these culture warriors may be moving forward towards. Or does it function more like a fulcrum point? It's a point of solidity where these changes then can be shifted from and to. I wonder what you think about the way that the role of the Museum of the Bible in these wider cultural shifts, like what is it doing here? I'll give a specific example in reference to another Supreme Court decision more recent, the fall of Roe. So the Museum of the Bible has had in its event spaces events that are anti-choice events. And it is also the end of a March for Life in Washington, D.C. It was the end goal. And there are pictures of this on social media, which is how we know, because of course they're not allowed to publicize or give information about private events that are held in the space. But particularly on the Green family's social media, one can find images of this event. And so the museum has become sort of a place of mobilization or of gathering for people who are invested in these sorts of conservative politics. And I doubt that one would ever see a pro-choice or pro-healthcare, women's healthcare event at the Museum of the Bible. I think that one way to look at the museum and its connection to our shifting politics of religion is to say that part of why we trace the history of this museum and part of why we trace the history of white evangelicalism is that white evangelicalism as a sect within American public life has been in competition with other forms of white Protestantism for control of public space. And I think that that when we talk about secularism or a secular space or a separation between church and state in, the, in, in American history, what we're talking about is a kind of main, what I would call maybe a mainline Protestant vision of American secularism. And so there has always been a kind of Christian-centric um, aspect to our secularism, a kind of more progressive or liberal form of Protestantism. And what's coming back now with the Supreme Court, with institutions like the Museum of the Bible, with political organizing that connects all those pieces together, is the forces of the sect of white evangelicalism and their allies in conservative Catholics or in Pentecostals. And so I think what we're seeing is a shift, not from secularism to a Christian-centered notion of how our public should operate, 
but from one form of Christianity to the other, which has been the result of a defunding of mainline institutions, which were in the early 20th century funded by powerful wealthy interests as well. And so we're seeing a resurgence of a longer fight that's been going on between white forms of Protestantism in the United States. And one is now taking an upper hand. And I think that the specific example that I just offered is a useful illustration of that because Christians are not all agreed. They're not all anti-abortion or they're not all pro-life, so to speak. And so that is a sort of meeting place for that more conservative form of Christianity. And I think that this really raises the final question that I want to ask you both, and that is how museums, particularly the Museum of the Bible, functions as a site not of agreement about these questions, but the presentation of a kind of imagined agreement. I think that's really useful for my listeners to understand, that that we're producing something at this site that maps a kind of agreement that doesn't exist outside the doors of the museum, but within the museum, it's presenting a kind of mediated reality of agreement. And I wonder if you could meditate on that with me. What, what are we to take away from this desire to produce a world where all Christians agree, at least within the walls of the Museum of the Bible? If we think of the Museum of the Bible as a resonance machine, what is it resonating? So it's resonating white evangelical theology that has been around for a while. It's repeating it over and over again. But it's doing so from a position of attempting to influence. So it's using the form of a museum, which, as we said earlier, was connected to uh, presumptions about ob objectivity or of history being just there. And it's doing so in a format that is designed to be appealing. It has wow. flashy exhibits. It has in interactive experiences. And it's, in a sense, trying to package white evangelicalism to an audience that it perceives needs to hear it, which would be people who are interested in fun museum experiences. And this serves two goals. It reinforces people who already resonate with this machine, showing them that they're relevant. They're connected to something that is cool and new and hip. But it also helps us to understand how this museum imagines what the American public wants. And so I think what we're seeing here is a chance to see a dialogue of the imagined public sphere from the perspective of the sect of white evangelicalism. I think this also takes us back to a distinction we made previously between the conceptual icon, the construct Bible, capital B and lowercase b, Bibles, which are material forms of a, or in the conception of this distinction, are material forms of big B, Bible. Because what the Museum of the Bible is doing is collapsing distinctions between what we call a white evangelical Bible, lowercase b, and the cultural icon of the Bible, which for many American Christians and for many Jews, is important, but not in the way that it is represented in the museum. And so there is diversity and the museum it, inside the museum, there are some attempts to capture diversity, though we argue that it's all teleologically moving towards white evangelicalism as the best way to be the best Bible. 
But in collapsing that distinction, that is a way of rhetorically closing down imaginations of what else the Bible could be, if indeed it is significant to someone in a different way. Well, Professor Jill Hicks Keaton and Professor Kevin Kincannon, I just want to say I loved your book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? You have taken some of the questions that I've been thinking about, not just for years, but for decades, and you gave them back to me in such a clear analysis and with such startling new ideas and new ways of bringing them together. I'm going to be coming back to this book again and again, both with my students, but also in my own scholarship. I can't thank you enough for the time that you took to research and prepare the text of this book, but thank you also especially for taking the time to talk about it today with me and with my audience. Thank you for having us. It was such a great time. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Jill Hicks Keaton. She's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Kevin Kincannon. He's Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California. We've been speaking today about their recent book, Does Scripture Speak for Itself? The Museum of the Bible and the Politics of Interpretation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.